What does a multicultural community look like? Society that has different races and its people are aware of their differences, but they are aware of those differences not to like, split, but to come together. A community of people who see beyond skin color and a community that thrives and learns from each other. A safe place where uh, people from different religions, different color, different gender, different ethnicities can coexist peacefully. There's a community in which, uh, no matter the difference, the racial difference, black, white, yellow, or red, the most, the rights of these people are accepted by the other communities. One in which people from any, from any and all backgrounds feel comfortable completely expressing themselves and learning from each other. It's not really a formulaic thing, it's actually just kind of a living, very organic um, sort of an entity. One that accepts people and supports and cares for each other and offers a safe space to ask questions on any level and still love each other at the end of the day. Living together, because differences is not the big thing here. And people being able to live together, being aware of one another, and living together in a peaceful like society. What is servant leadership? To me, a servant leader is a person who is a very good person. Putting yourself below the people you're serving and leading, and being an example. I'm serving by example. Jesus. Jesus was a leader, but he taught us to be servants to one another, not only to learn from ourselves, but to teach others and to educate others, just like MLK. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. This morning, the thing that I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Because everybody can serve.
I'd like to encourage all of you, young and not so young, to recognize that there is work to be done. Remember what the great poet said to us, Gene Johnson, we are the ones we've been waiting for. for that great song. That was very fun. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Yolo Lopez Perez. I'm a senior broadcasting major and youth ministry minor here at Goshen College. And we want to welcome you today to Martin Luther King Day 2012. We hope you will get a lot out of this conversation that we will be having with servant leader and civil rights movement. His name is Dr. Vincent Harding. But before we begin um, any of the questions that I will be asking, I want to introduce him a little bit. Um, for those of you who were not able to make um, the convo yesterday at Elmbo Center. Well, Dr. Harding is known for working with Dr. Martin Luther King alongside in the 1950s and the 1960s. He was very instrumental in the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Movement. And he has served as a Mennonite church pastor and also was the director of the Mennonite House in Atlanta in the 1960s. And Dr. Harding has served as the first director of the King Center in Atlanta, which helps found the Coretta Scott King, as you saw in the video. 
And Dr. Harding has written several books. He is retired, but that doesn't mean his work has stopped there. As a matter of fact, he's currently teaching at a course at Morehouse College in Atlanta. So I guess I already said something very positive about him and how hardworking he is. So I'm excited to hear more about his stories and what he's going to be sharing today. So let's go ahead and welcome Dr. King, excuse me, Dr. Harding to the stage at Goshen College. We just wanted to make sure that I didn't fall. He's helping me now. Good. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> we ready? Are we all ready? This is going to be a laid-back conversation. I just want everybody to be relaxed, um, enjoy. And if we have time at the end, we will be um, having some questions. But I will let you guys know um, if we have time for that. So, Dr. Harding, before we start with any of the difficult questions, I want to know how you're doing today. So that's a very basic one. I am doing very well. Looking forward to this, but I had a wonderfully crazy experience. I was given a list of questions that students were going to be asking, and I was getting myself all ready for it, and then I got here and found out well, it's not quite that way anymore. <laughs> We're going. So it's a wonderful opportunity for me to be sharp and concerned <laughs> and read your eyes and also hope that there is going to be some time for students to ask questions and for me to ask questions of students. So let's see how we go, okay? Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like it's off to a good start. Well, today, obviously, we're celebrating the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and as we talked about, he talked about the beloved community, as noted in the video from last night. Um, you discussed the hope for a multiracial community here on campus. Um, so I guess my question to you is, what does that mean to you to have an intercultural campus? I think, Yellow, one of the first things that it means is that we have a community in which we encourage each other to share our uniqueness and not push each other to become one thing that represents one culture, one life, one community. We bring our various experiences, histories, communities, cultures together and try to create something new that hasn't existed before. That is what I see as the strength and meaning of a multicultural community, a community built of many communities to create a new reality. Okay, and um, so basically once we have blended in our different uniqueness, could you give us an example of what would be one way of integrating basically um, everybody's differences into one? 
what would be an example that we could apply it to in an activity or circumstance? You just heard it. You just saw it. Those wonderful young women, they brought the music of the African-American experience. They brought spirit that was obviously related to Irish singing that I've heard. They brought the American music and I'm ready to tell Sweet Honey and the Rock <laughs> that they've got some wonderful possibilities here <laughs> and that they should come to Goshen. Now, my second question is um, kind of setting myself as an example. As a Hispanic student, I'm a senior and part of the um, leadership program here on campus called CITL, also known as Center for Intercultural Teaching and Learning. And what CITL does is research on Latino students here on campus and also the wider community. Um, and recently, CITL's research has informed us that there has been an exponential growth in Latino students. Um, like I said, um, CITL is an excellent program. I love working with them. But I also see another side, um, that there are some who believe that if we open the, the doors too wide or we're too open to change, we could lose our Mennonite identity as a campus. What do you think about that? As I see it, Jalal, identity is not something that is most valuable to, it, to us when we are grasping it and saying, don't lose it. Identity is most helpful and useful to us when we're saying, how can we join what we have with what others have? Yes, you might have to do something different in order to open up this space so that someone else can come here. And remember what I said at the beginning, Yellow. We've got to be ready to look at the possibility that something new needs to be born. And what we call Mennonite identity does not, cannot, must not, simply be a block of stone that's set down and we are told this is Mennonite identity and it will never be anything else ever. No, if we are alive and if identity is alive, what we see when we look at life is that life is always going through transmutations changes, development, that often we did not expect. If the caterpillar said, I am going to be a caterpillar, that's all. <laughs> Losing its chance to fly. I think that all of us who have, quote, identities, must recognize that identities are meant to be engaged with other identities in order to create new identity. 
And I think Mennonites need to think about identity in that way, not as something to grasp and therefore almost choke to death, but something to open up and to say, hey, look, this is what I've got. What do you have? What can we make of this new coming together? I'm not afraid of the loss of Mennonite identity. What I'd love to see is the blossoming of Mennonite identity. And that will happen when Mennonites hang around with people like you. Okay? Thank you. <laughs> so, um, looking for friends, if anybody wants to be my friend now. All right, <laughs> good. Go to it. Um, and this year, our college is highlighting the core value of servant leadership. We've had a, quite a bit of emphasis in our classes about being a servant leader. And obviously, we have one day where we dedicate to service. But this year, I felt that there's more of an emphasis in that. And obviously, we know that Dr. King was an excellent example of servant leadership with the things that he did and all of the movements that he made here in America. And about when I was reading about you, a little bit of your story, I, I was thinking I could also see him as a servant leader for sure, definitely. Um, so my question to you is, what does servant leadership look like to you? Let's take Martin King as our example. I'm this spring serving as a visiting professor on the campus where he went to school. Anybody know the name of the school where he went to college? All right, come on. Got some students here. Great. <laughs> Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the great historic black colleges in the country. And Martin King graduated from Morehouse in 1948. He went from Morehouse to a theological school I won't ask you for that one because that may be a bit dif more difficult, but someone might know. Anyone know what theological school? It wasn't um, Associated Midnight Biblical Seminary, yeah. right? Uh, but um, anybody know? Some old voice back there <laughs> said, say it louder. Before Boston, Crozier Theological Seminary uh, in outside of Philadelphia. That's where he got his MDiv degree. Then went on to Boston University, partly because Boston University was one of the few universities in this country in the 1950s that accepted African-American students. Please understand that in this land of the free and home of the brave. In the 1950s, Boston University was one of the few universities that accepted African-American students, and almost no university had African-American teachers. 
Martin went to Crozier Seminary, Boston University, and when he was finished with his doctorate, Yalo, I am coming, believe it or not, to your question. <laughs> You're fine. His image of what he would do with his life was fascinating. He saw himself as becoming perhaps a pastor of a church and if he could work it out, at the same time do some part-time teaching at a college or university and maybe even become a dean. Any deans around here? Uh, that was one of Martin's first uh, aspirations and he ended up, as most of you know, in Montgomery, Alabama, and thought that he would be simply the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church there, a black, essentially middle-class uh, congregation, and thought that he might then be on the faculty at Alabama State University, a black, segregated university at the time, and then, when he finally got to Montgomery, what he discovered was that there were all kinds of women in the black community of Montgomery who had been talking for years about segregation in Montgomery and about what should be done about it, what could be done about it. And King came to Montgomery, hadn't finished his doctorate yet, finished writing his dissertation there in Montgomery in the 54-55 academic year, his first year of uh, pastoring, his uh, final year of doing the dissertation, and when he got his PhD then in 1955, he really thought that he knew what leadership meant and what a PhD was for, to pastor the church, to work in the, in the university. But Rosa Parks had another idea. And the women called the Women's Leadership Council that Rosa Parks was a part of, began to move the people as a result of Ms. Parks's decision not to get up, not to give in to the segregation of the time. And as they organized, as the women and then some of the other leaders of the town organized, they said, we need a spokesperson. We need someone who can be the spokesperson for our Montgomery Improvement Association organization. And then essentially they said to King, Dr. King, you don't know what that PhD is for, but we know. <laughs> and we want you to be the spokesperson for all kinds of reasons, and King 
thought about it deeply and saw very clearly that his role had to have something to do with serving the people and not telling the people how they should be served, but hearing the people speak of how they needed to be served. And so servant leader, one who leads the people as they desire to move forward. Those people already knew that they wanted to break down segregation. In other words, they knew where they wanted to go. Therefore, they knew the kind of leader they needed in order to go there. Martin didn't come galloping into uh, Montgomery on a white steed and saying, I am your leader. No, the people knew that they needed the kind of leadership that he could provide. They called him. He became their servant. But I want to just end this long, long response to your question by reminding you about the fact that Martin himself kept developing his own sense of what leadership meant, what he should be doing, how he should be doing it. I've got a quotation from him that I want to read as a part of this long, long answer. By the time Martin is in his mid-30s, he is in Chicago. He is working at that point in a very poor community in Chicago. And he is saying this. Remember, King came out of the middle class black community of Atlanta. His father and grandfather and great-grandfather were all pastors. Um, they were part of that black middle class. That's where King comes from. He's gone to school, he's gone to seminary, he's got a PhD, and by the time he's in his 30s, this is what he's saying about what it means for him to be a leader. I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to identify with the poor. I choose to give my life for the hungry. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. I choose to live for and with those who find themselves seeing life as a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. 
this is the way I'm going. If it means suffering a little bit, I'm going that way. If it means sacrificing, I'm going that way. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way. Because I heard a voice saying, do something for others. So Lalo, when, when his friend Jim Lawson called him from Memphis, Tennessee, and said, Martin, there's some garbage workers here who are striking for a better wage to raise their families. They want you to come, Martin, because they know that if you come here, the press will follow you wherever you go, and people will know about garbage workers needing help. Can you come? And in the midst of objections from all of his staff, the servant leader said, Jim, tell me when you want me to come. I'll be there in Memphis with them. That was the servant leader. That, that is a great example. And now with that definition of servant leadership, um, I also believe that this kind of work can be very challenging, um, difficult, and frustrating at some times, at some points. Um, so my question to you is, what inspires you to continue in this challenging work after all of these years and being part of this movement? Well, for one thing, my dear, I have committed myself as fully as God gives me grace to take Jesus seriously. And I don't see any way of taking Jesus seriously without standing with the poor, without being available to anyone who is in trouble, without always looking around for where are the outcasts and the weak and going to stand by their side. I don't see any way of saying, I want to walk with Jesus or I want Jesus to walk with me without recognizing that that's where Jesus walked, that's how Jesus walked, and if we want to walk with Jesus, we've got to look for the weakest and the poorest and the most beat up and the most pushed aside because he clearly said, remember Matthew 25? When the time comes, it's not about people going around with signs saying, I follow Jesus. It's about, I'm going to be looking for you where the prisoners are. And I'm going to be looking for you where the hungry are. And I'm going to be looking for you where 
the discriminated against are. And I'm expecting to see you there because I'm going to be there. And if he is there, and if I say I want to follow him, then I need to be there too. Partly because it's such a great thing to be around the folks that he's around. So that's what helps to inspire me. Well, thank you, Dr. Harding. Um, I think we will open it up for a few questions. Um, you can walk up to the mic, um, feel free. We'll take any questions, just a few, for about five minutes. Since I'm the oldest person on this stage, <laughs> I started to say in this place, and I said, no, no, not quite. <laughs> I'd like to push my dear sister and ask if I can offer an answer to a question that she didn't ask. I'd like that too. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I got a couple of days ago a list of questions that I was told students were asking or going to ask, and one of the questions was, what was the role of women in the movement? And are there any women that we should know about who we don't hear about enough? And I want to respond to that question in two ways. One, <clears throat> I want to respond by offering some names and by saying to you, now that you live in a world that I have not yet occupied, and that is the world of Google, <laughs> then you should be taking down every name that you hear and making use of that great instrument uh, to check it out. I would say, my dear, if you had asked that question, that one of the major names that I would mention would be the name of Ella J. Baker, one of the great teachers of the freedom movement, who helped to encourage the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to organize themselves and become one of the major leadership groups made up of high school and college-age students. She encouraged them to give the leadership that they could give to the movement. Ella Baker was her name. Sweet Honey in the Rock created a song called Ella's Song. Some of you might want to get that, look at that. Sweet Honey in the Rock uh, created it many years ago. I would also mention the name of Diane Nash. Diane was a student at Fisk University when the sit-in started. Diane, a very beautiful young woman, had come to Fisk wanting more than anything else to be a campus queen. And she became a campus queen. But then when the movement came to town, she decided that what she really wanted to do was work 
for a better world, not to be a campus queen, but to be a servant in the work for a better world. If you want to know something more about Diane Nash, get the DVD, The Freedom Rides, The Freedom Riders, and look at it and learn who Diane Nash was. Also, please know that there were many names that you never heard, but lots of people never heard. And I would like to mention three of the nameless. Three young women, 12, 13, and 14, whose lives were bombed to death in Birmingham, Mississippi in 1963, two weeks after the March on Washington, in ways that I can't tell you now, their death led to the development of a major voting rights campaign that became the Selma to Montgomery March. Finally, I will mention another name and then I hope that you'll be able to hear the voice that this woman carried as a teenager. Maxine Brown is her name. She lived in Selma. And like many women all through the movement, she was one of the great song leaders of the movement who sang not on stages like this, but sang as they marched through the dogs, through the fire hoses, through the clan who sang and led the singing. Teenagers led a lot of the singing of the movement. The movement was a singing movement. I brought a CD hoping that somebody, someplace up there or around, would be ready to play the CD for you to be able to hear one of the songs that Maxine led when she was a 15-year-old girl in Selma, encouraging people to get involved in the movement and to carry on and not be afraid. Is the CD ready someplace? Great, thank you. What's your name? the singing in Selma in 1965. 
Thank you. Thank you. May I say a couple more things? Sure. We have about two minutes. For those of you who have time, I've got time just to, when we close out, if you'd like to come up here and continue the conversation in any way for another half hour or so, I'd be happy uh, to do that. My life is built by being with young people like you. That's the way I get to be 81 and still climbing up on seats. So <laughs> come and feed me, and we can feed each other if you would like to. Secondly, one of the, song, one of the questions that was passed on to me is a question I want to uh, share with you, and that was, um, are you satisfied with freedom now? Uh, now, it sort of was saying, now that you've got freedom, are you okay with it? And I smiled when I saw that because for me, freedom is not even a land or something that you get. Freedom is a process that you engage in, that you live into, that you're living a freedom way. Rosario, Rose, Rocio? Rocio, I was encouraged, Rocio, last night to live into the freedom of her great gifts, to live into the freedom that makes her a leader from the inside. I was encouraging all of you just now to live into the freedom of the great varieties that you have here and take full advantage of that in ways that your foreparents could not, would not, did not, but you now have a freedom to be engaged with each other in ways that may make it possible for us to create a better Goshen College City, maybe even Elkhart, but maybe even America. Because the last thing that I want to tell you is one of my great inspirations. And that is, it came from a young man who I never saw, whose name I don't know. All that I know is that sometime in the late 1950s, I heard him on a radio program. And he came out of West Africa uh, and was deeply involved in the struggles in West Africa at the time to overcome colonial domination and to create new societies. And he made this marvelous comment to the interviewer. He said, I am a citizen of a country that does not yet exist. I think that that is what I am asking you all to be free to see. 
that we are citizens of a country that we must still be creating, the country where all of us are welcome, where all of us are deep participants, where all of us can sing and move and meet each other, where the oldest among us will always know that they are cared for, and the youngest among us will always know that they will be nurtured. We are citizens of that country that must still be built, and I'm encouraging all of you to move into that freedom, the freedom to build the country that does not yet exist. And I will stay around as long as I can to participate with you in that process. Peace be with you. Dr. Harding, it was a pleasure meeting you and Thank getting to talk to you. I had heard a lot of good stories, and I was really excited to meet you. All right. Um, continue with the stories all through your life, please. I will. I will. Thank you. And I will, I will make sure my peers also do it. Good. Well, you ended with my note. I was going to say we continue. We encourage you to um, think about what, um, his advice and what he said to really apply it to our lives. But I think he said it best, so there's nothing for me to end with. Besides, um, I would like to introduce Dr. Greg Ember um, to come on up, and he will give you instructions on the luncheon next. He is a member of the Martin Luther King Committee, who will talk about 40 days of peace, and like I said, provide instructions. So come on up. Feel free to sit or stand. Good morning, my name is Greg Ember, and as a member of the Study Day Committee, my privilege to share a few words briefly about 40 Days of Peace, as well as invite you to participate in that. If you were here last year, you may recall the 40 Days of Peace initiative. It's an idea that we, the committee, got from uh, 40daysofpeace.org, which is uh, an organization that had this idea. We brought it here on campus last year with the help also of the PR department. Uh, it went very well. This year, what we decided to do is to change it just a little bit, uh, 40 days of peace and service. So in conjunction with our theme of servant leadership, we customized those 40 days to include other ideas of acts of service. And I just thought I'd share a couple of those with you. The first one, which is today, consider volunteering for a local organization once a week for the next six weeks. Uh, January 31st. Learn more about one of the service-oriented organizations in your community through talking with others. I think these are very much in conjunction with this, this future country that we're, we're building, too. Uh, make, uh, clean up a nearby parking lot, park, public space. And the final one in the, in the first 40 days, plan your next major vacation as one involving service or volunteerism. Consider, for example, a Witness for Peace trip or volunteering during your time in another city or community. 
Could I add another in that same spirit? How about finding one or two or three older people and take a tape and ask them to tell you their story or some part of their story that means a great deal to them, hardship or joy or whatever, it will be so important for them to have young people come to them and say, we want to hear your story. Please tell us. That is great service. You may not know it, but for an older person to have you come and say, tell us your story, please, that would be a wonderful service. Might be your mama, <laughs> or your auntie, or your uncle. We have something similar to that. Find a way to help youth or seniors that you do not know by donating time, goods, and services. Good. That's a wonderful example. Um, so please consider signing the pledge and going for 40 days. I, I think that this is a wonderful thing. And I, again, I want to credit uh, Hannah Gerritmeyer for helping with the graphic design, but all of the PR helping uh, the committee with this initiative. And before we go off to lunch, uh, I want to, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Harding and you all for being here. Um, if you've already made plans to attend the luncheon, it will be served immediately after this program, and the more formal program will probably happen a little closer to 11.30. But before we go out, a student group called One Voice is going to lead us in two selections. So please stay for that, participate to the extent that you can, and uh, Consider joining us for the luncheon if you had plans to do so. Thank you. Please help us sing. We shall not be moved. <laughs>